Tonight we're going to be looking at rest and responsibility. Those two don't really seem to go together, do they? But in these two chapters, we're going to see that God gives responsibility to the children of Israel, things that they're to do with the tabernacle on a weekly and daily basis. But also, he's got instructions for Sabbath rest. Especially every seventh year, the fields were to rest, labor was to rest. Could you imagine every seventh year you get the whole year off? But you also don't get paid for a year? It would really push your trust in the Lord, push you to that place of dependence upon God. And we're going to look at the year of Jubilee, the 49th year, that seventh Sabbath rest would be a year of celebration, a year where debts are forgiven, slaves are set free, and property is restored. So in the midst of celebration is responsibility. Chapter 24 is the responsibility chapter. Chapter 25 is the chapter of Jubilee. If you remember from a few weeks back, chapter 23 was the feast. So in between this rejoicing, we have a responsibility. And in the midst of rest, God also does give us a responsibility. So let's pray and ask that God would bless our time in the Word. Father, we're thankful that we could be here, be in your presence. Thank you that you're our dad. You're our Abba Father. You're our refuge. We pray you would strengthen us for those responsibilities in life. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our rest. You tell us to come to you, all those who are weak and weary, heavy laden, and that you'll give us rest. We're, we're desiring that rest tonight. Would you teach us the value of work, but also the value of rest and the value of jubilee and celebration? We also look forward to heaven, the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate rest, to forever be with you. We're getting closer to that all the time. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from the evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps of the pure gold lampstands before the Lord continually. So the people were to provide the olive oil. Yet the priests, their responsibility was to keep the lamps burning all of the time. And specifically, what kind of oil they were to use, that, that which is pressed. And it was pure olive oil. Jesus was pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know in Gethsemane, there's olive trees and a picture of what Christ did for us on the cross where he was crushed for, for our sin. Oil points to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's what lights up our life. And so Jesus was crushed to be that pure oil, to provide that oil of uh, the Holy Spirit. As the people would bring in the oil, the priests would have to then do a lot of work to keep these lamps lit, just 24-7 perpetually for all uh, generations. And just like God meets us in the feasts and he meets us in that Sabbath rest, he also meets us in the daily grind, doesn't he? And there's worship to be found in the monotony. Worship for these priests as they're keeping the lamps lit, 
Maybe you're feeling like, man, I'm just doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's Groundhog's Day. Here I am, the same responsibilities, the same dishes, the same laundry, the same job, the same school, and I'm just going through this routine. And I feel like sometimes that provides the opportunity for the deepest worship uh, with the Lord, and he, he meets us in, in that place. We also see a beautiful picture here with the priests and the people. Is Charles Spurgeon said, it's great congregations that make great preachers. So the people are bringing the oil, and the priests were responsible to keep the lamps burning. And it's a pastor's job to teach the word of God and open up the word of God, but it's a congregation having a love for God's word. So thank you for your love for God's word, because it's a, a great encouragement. I often hear from pastors that guest speak here from other churches, how much they enjoy teaching at RMC because of your love for God's word. In verse five, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. So very specific of the size of loaf of cake, the bread, you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it shall be on the bread for memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So once a week on the Sabbath to bring in these loaves of bread, the people bringing in these loaves of bread, and to be set out systematically in rows of six, 12 total. How many tribes are there in the children of Israel? 12 tribes. So these loaves are representative of the children of Israel. Why the bread? The bread was to be a memorial or remembering God's covenant with the nation of Israel. That God wasn't going to leave them and God wasn't going to forsake them. And Israel, with all of their shortcomings, God has not left them. God has not forsaken them. Jesus is the bread of life. Tonight we're going to celebrate communion together at the end of service. And we're told that he did this to bring us into the new covenant of God's grace. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this, my body is broken to you. This, this is the blood of my covenant. This is the broken body of my covenant. So as we celebrate communion, we're reminded that Jesus is the one that brings us into covenant relationship with God. God's promises are gonna be true in our life. His finished work on the cross is gonna be true in our lives. So the bread is a reminder of the covenant. The broken body of, of Jesus is a reminder of the covenant. In verse 10, so these are all responsibilities that God had given to the children of Israel. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. So this young man's mom is a Hebrew and dad is an Egyptian, which I'm sure would happen with the children of Israel being in captivity to Egypt. And when they were delivered, dad decides we're, we're going with the people of God. Went out amongst the children of Israel and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. Happens, right? Fights break out in the camp. 
Fights break out in the home. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him into custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. So this young man blasphemes the Lord, takes the names name of the Lord in vain. In frustration in the midst of this fight, he, he blasphemes God. It's overheard, so they bring him into custody, trying to decide what to do with him. Specifically, they, they want to know what the mind of the Lord is. They want to know what God's will is in the midst of this. This is a good principle in the midst of life when we don't know what to do. Don't make drastic decisions. Pause and seek the mind of the Lord. Get in God's word, Pray, get godly counsel, sort it out. So they're taking some time to sort it out. In verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who was cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all of the congregation stone him. You'd think maybe that this might be an opportunity where there would be some grace. Here's Dad's an Egyptian, mom's an Israelite, he's a young man, maybe the Lord will give him forgiveness, but the Lord clearly speaks to Moses. They didn't go for consensus vote here, they didn't have a discussion or a dialogue, hey, what does everybody think we should do with this guy? They wanted to hear what the mind of God was, what does God want? And God says he should be stoned, and everybody who heard him blaspheme the Lord place their hands on his head, and then the congregation of Israel stone him. Now, this is intense, right? What is God teaching us from this uh, section of scripture? One is he's showing us that his name is holy, that his name is to be revered and to be set apart, to not be taken about uh, flippantly. Also, this points us to the need for grace, the need for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Well, when we read the wages of sin is death, how much do we really believe that? Because if you blaspheme the Lord, you should be stoned. Like we really deserve death, physical death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus took our sin upon the cross, paid the punishment so we could experience God's forgiveness and, instead of experiencing God's wrath. In verse 15, then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sins, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. God says it's the same standard. Whether you're an Israelite or you're a foreigner, if you blaspheme the name of the Lord, you'll be put to death in Israel. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. So God lays out some reasons for capital punishment. If you take someone's life, God's valuing life, and you commit murder, then you shall be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. Now please notice the distinction here. If you take somebody else's life, you would lose your life. If you kill an animal, not to eat, but just for some cruelty reasons, then you don't have capital punishment. You're to replace the animal. I hate to burst your bubble, but there's a difference between humans and animals. 
Now, don't go out and mistreat animals, but animals aren't made in God's image, and people are. And we've forgotten that a little bit in our culture. We've placed probably animals at the same level or above people. A lot of times people are nicer to their pets than they are to their own kids, right? Something's messed up with that a little bit. You should love people more than you love your dog. I hate to tell you that. Dogs are a blessing. I like my dog sometimes. A few days a week, I like my dog. But God has created us in, in his image. So we love animals, we appreciate animals, but we put a, a distinction in the way that God has placed priority. Uh, by the way, my email is Cartier at armcalvary.org if you want to share your thoughts with me on that. Verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he is done, so it shall be done to him. Again, this is the nature of the law. It's not the nature of grace. It points us to the grace that we find in, in Christ. But this is the nature of, of justice. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. This is justice. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. However, many times we don't want justice. Let's be honest. If you took one of my eyeballs, I probably want both of yours, right? If you knocked out one of my teeth, then I'm going for five of yours. Like we, we want revenge. We, don't, we really don't want uh, justice. What did Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, then turn the other cheek. Say, go ahead. You can, you can slap me on the other side as well. And the way of Jesus is the way of grace, where he paid the price for sin. Because where does eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth end? Going back and forth with, with justice. Grace wins out over justice. It's God's grace that is satisfied in his justice, him paying the price for, for sin. And whoever kills an animal shall restore, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. Again, this distinction. You shall have the same law for a stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they stood outside the camp, him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So these are some pretty heavy responsibilities. Keep the lamp going 24-7. Bring in the bread on the Sabbath day. And then if someone curses the Lord, they should be stoned. But we flip from these responsibilities to rejoicing. And sometimes responsibilities can be very intense and grueling and graining, draining and graining, is that it's hard to move into a place of rejoicing. I uh, was recently reading a book on biblical manhood and it was talking about disciplines of a godly man or practices of a godly man. And it was like number three, and it really surprised me what the author wrote. It was saying that one of the practices of a godly man is joy and happiness. And he put it in the words play. That as men, we should know how to play. He said he was going over to his friend's house, he and his family for, for dinner joining their family for dinner, and his friend was on his riding lawnmower in his yard, just mowing like this, just crazy man mowing. 
goes, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm playing. And that really bothered this author. He's like, how do you have time to play? And this guy was a successful businessman, and he's like, I don't have time to play. How do you have time to play? But he was talking about as we rejoice, as we play, how glorifying that is to God and life-giving it is to others and the value of taking time to play with your kids. He was saying that there's some women's magazine that has these men always engaging in playful activity where they're throwing snowballs at ladies. And this innately is attractive to women because women, I guess, would love to have a husband, love to have a man in their life that's, that's a great provider and a hard worker, but is also playful. And, and for me, this, this is not like a godly discipline that would come to my mind. I think of godly discipline as being faithful, yes, absolutely, being in God's word, absolutely, but like, okay, I've got to discipline myself to make sure that I just take some time to play, to take time to enjoy Amber, enjoy the kids, and enjoy the church family, just, just have a good time. But when you do that, what happens? When you get together with people and you laugh and you play, like say you have some friends over and you play some games and you laugh, you feel bonded, don't you? And usually after that, you share more deep conversations and even the, the things of, of God. When you go out and you just have a, a good time with your kids, a good time with your, your friends, it, it opens up the, the things of God. So God here sets out some pretty radical stuff in chapter 25, things that he wanted for his people, where he's like, okay, every seventh year, you guys just need to hang out with each other. You need to enjoy me. You need to have some playtime. Really? One-seventh of our time is given to this idea of play and rest and enjoyment? Yeah, absolutely. And remember, this is coming on the heels of the feasts in chapter 23, which was a lot of rest as as well, rest and, and worship. Then every 50th year, another year off with even more celebration. Debts are set free, slaves are set free, and also property is restored. So, where's the room for play in your life? (laughs) When you look at a seven-day period, as you look at a 12 months of the year, is there time where you set aside to say, I am just going to enjoy? And why does it have to be a discipline? Because we'll tend to always work. We're working at work, and then we get home, and it's like, I got to get this project done, and I got to clean this, and got to go out and do that, and we don't really value or understand uh, this concept of, of play. So, so I hope to get better at this. That's a personal goal in, in 2021. I would love it f- for my kids at my funeral if they said, you know, dad knew how to have a good time. You know, dad would enter into our world and goof off and play and all of those, those types of, of things because I do believe that it uh, glorifies the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying. So God's speaking all this to Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses is declaring it. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, which I will give you, they're in the wilderness, traveling to the promised land. Then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. 
But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your unintended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells in you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be your food. <laughs> don't plant anything. Don't prune anything. And whatever comes up, that you can harvest to meet the needs of your own household, but there's no buying or selling. It's not like, okay, this is what God provided in the seventh year, so we're going to go sell it. You went and harvested to meet your own needs. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little nervous going into the seventh year. Going, okay, this rest thing, that sounds cool, but how in the world is God going to provide? It was a test of their faith in God's promise that he'd cause stuff to grow when they didn't plant it. Rest really tests our trust in God as our provider. Okay, Lord, I'm going to trust that you can provide more in six days of me working than me working seven days a week. I'm going to set time aside to rest, enjoy the Lord, and enjoy those who you've placed around me. We also know in, in this year they would read the book of Deuteronomy together. They'd study the book of Deuteronomy together, having that time in God's word. In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, it says that the children of Israel are punished by God because they didn't practice the seventh year of rest. And God caused them to go into bondage for 70 years because they gypped God on that many Sabbath rests. So God said, I'm going to get rest. My land is going to get rest. You robbed me of it for 490 years, and so now you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. I don't know if you've noticed this, but your body, my body, is going to get rest one way or the other. You either give yourself rest, I give myself rest, or eventually we burn ourselves out and our bodies break down. Our bodies get to a point and says, hey, you can't function like this you're going to have to rest. I don't know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I wonder how many physical things are tied back to the lack of rest and stress. We know that stress does terrible things to our health. What's happened to the land when we don't allow the land to rest? God says this is a Sabbath rest for, for the land. The land's not meant to be planted and harvest every year. What have we done in our greed when it comes to land is we've altered the seed, genetically modified it, tried to figure out all these different ways that we can make the land to produce as much as possible. I wonder what would happen to our farming if we allowed the land to rest. There are some documentations of farmers that do really well that rotate their fields and make sure that their land rests the other every seventh uh, year. Now into this year of Jubilee. 
And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of seven Sabbaths of years be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. Everybody's probably really excited for this trumpet to sound. This is going to be the year of celebration, the year of joy, the year that debts are forgiven, slaves are released, property is restored, and this trumpet is bringing into celebration. Is there another trumpet that brings us into celebration? We know there'll be the last trump when Jesus raptures the church, bringing us into the ultimate celebration, into the ultimate year of jubilee where all believers are joined at the throne room of God. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all of the land to all of its inhabitants. So the message of the year of jubilee is liberty, of freedom. It shall be jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your unintended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In the year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price, for he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." When God brought the children of Israel into the promised land, he gave specific areas of the promised land to specific tribes. So this land was to stay inside of the tribes. So if you fell on hard times, you could sell your land, but you were to get it back on the 50th year. So this principle here is be fair with one another. If you're selling some land on the 47th year, getting close to the 50th year, it's not worth as much if it is year one and there's 40 more, nine more years till Jubilee. Does that make sense? The land has more value if you get to lease it, if you would, for 49 years. So also, if you are an Israelite and you are on hard times, you could be a slave, a servant to another Israelite family. So debts were to be forgiven, Slaves were be to be set free, and property was to be restored. And Jesus ultimately brings us into jubilee. Would you like to experience some liberation in your life tonight? I know that I would, some, some rejoicing. Well, Jesus sets the captive free, doesn't he? He's forgiven our sins totally and completely, and we experience jubilee when we forgive other people's sin. When I choose to not extend the forgiveness that God has given to me, I'm going to get all locked up in bitterness. 
But if I know God's forgiveness, and I know that God has forgiven me, he set me free as a, as a captive, then, and extend that to others, I'm gonna experience joy. So knowing that my sins are forgiven, but then also extending that forgiveness to others. We know that we're slaves to sin outside of Christ, but Christ sets us free from being slaves to sin. So we're no longer in bondage to sin. The power of sin's been broken in our lives. We don't have to continue in these patterns of sin. Is Jesus in the business of restoration? Absolutely. How cool would it be for a poor family that has lost everything, lost their property that God had given to them, and now it's the year of Jubilee and they get it back. And maybe somebody fixed it up during that time period and they actually get it back in better condition. And they get it back with some vineyards that weren't there prior. Wow, restoration. And God has the power to be able to restore. In Joel 2, it says this, that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. The swarming locusts, the Bible says. In Uganda, you guys know uh, our missionary and good friend, Kent and Becca Nolly, are serving over in Uganda. And this year, in addition to coronavirus, they also had swarming locusts. Kent was sending me these pictures, and these locusts are like the size of birds. I didn't realize that locusts were this big, and they go through and completely decimate all the crops, and it was very difficult for Kenya and Uganda uh, this year. So that's what God's speaking about when the locust comes in and just destroys our life. When the locust of sin comes in and destroys our life, thankfully God doesn't just leave us to our own devices, but as we turn to him, he's able to restore what the locusts have eaten. The swarming locusts have, have eaten it. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Or like, man, I really messed this up. I really jacked this up. I don't know what I was thinking. But God in his grace, he's restored this. He's, he's used this in my life. I want to suggest to you that restored is way better than brand new. Restored is way better than brand new. It's, it's cool when something comes right off the lot and it's a beautiful a new car. But isn't it amazing to see an old car that's been neglected and someone has put love and sweat and toil into that old vehicle to restore it to mint condition, maybe even better condition than it was when it came off of the lot? And you go, wow, I definitely see a, a greater value in this restored vehicle. I think we all appreciate an old house that's been beat up. And some of those beautiful homes in downtown Colorado Springs that people have, have restored. No knock on the new homes, but it's like, man, there's something beautiful about that restored home. There, there's some history that, that's there. And God's glory is seen when he brings restoration in our life, or he brings life or its death. And that, that brings jubilee uh, to us. In verse 18, So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Good question. What are we going to eat in that seventh year? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. God's like, if you trust me in this, and you're willing to rest, then I can take that sixth year and give you enough for three years. 
and you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Because if on that seventh year you can't plant, then you don't have anything to begin the eighth year with. You begin the eighth year with having to plant and wait for the harvest. And so God is saying, look, I can provide for that seventh year, but I can also provide for that eighth year if you'll trust me and you'll be willing to rest. We know from Second Chronicles that the children of Israel neglected this. They didn't take that seventh year to rest. They didn't trust God that God would bring about the blessing. We have no record anywhere in the Old Testament or any extra biblical historical documents that say the nation of Israel ever celebrated the year of Jubilee. From everything that we can tell, they never did it. God put it in the law, they're like, no way. Because though this sounds like great rejoicing, somebody had to let go of some land they inquired. Someone had to get generous in their giving in order for this to be a reality. They had to let go of their servants, their, their slaves that had come to them when they were in hard times. They, they weren't willing to, to do that. They had to trust the Lord. They had to trust that God was going to be able to provide. So as I've been thinking about this, I'm wondering how many blessings are there that I have walked away from similar to the nation of Israel, where God's like, okay, Eric, you're a knucklehead. You don't need to work seven days a week. Trust me, I can, I can provide. No, I need to work seven days a week. I always need to be in this place of, of work. One of the things I think that's hard for us in the way that we do work is at this time, it's an agrarian culture where work is out in the field. Work is with the cattle. Where is work for us? Well, it's right here. This is where work is for us. And now even more so, you're working from home. So home is work. Hard to get that separation. It's like, oh, it's just so easy. I'll just check some email, right? Got a little bit of downtime. It's a day off. I'll check some email. It's right here. It's convenient for me. And before you know it, you're, you're drawn into work. I'll, I'll just respond. There was a season in my life that was like so addicted to working. It's like I'm going to let the dog out in the evening, stand on the back deck waiting for the dog to do its business. I'll, I'll just check some email. How stupid is that, right? Like how important do I really think I am that my email can't wait? I can't rest and enjoy the Lord and, and enjoy uh, the family, right? We're missing out on what God wants for us if we're, we're working all the time. You might be saying, well, I've got so many bills. I can't afford to take a day off. Well, test the Lord. Work as much as you can in six days. Take a seventh day to rest and see if God will provide. See if God will do more in six days than what we can do in seventh because he is the ultimate provider. So there is a lot of freedom in these things, but in order for us to enter into these things, it's a step of faith. We know from God's word that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But it's easy to hold on to resources. I just need a little bit more. I just, I just need a little bit more. What, what if hard times come? But it's so fun to give in a hilarious way, to give in a big way. This is a big gift. Hey, by the way, you can go ahead and have these 10 acres back. 
Hey, you get these 100 acres and the house. I hope you guys enjoy it. And just walk away. Like God's been gracious to me. He, he's provided for all my needs. And so here is my opportunity to be able to give. And, and you can see why the nation of Israel never wanted to do that. And to say, Lord, I want to give in a way that you lead me to do. Because I know it's going to lead to jubilee. It's going to lead to joy in my life as I'm able to, to share the blessings that you have uh, entrusted. So verse 23 The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. The nation of Israel is so unique, and this is why, because God says it's his land. And what's the most contested real estate in all the world? Israel. God says, this belongs to me, and I'm giving it to this group of people, and we contest it, right? The Lord says, you don't own this land. This actually belongs to me, and it's entrusted to you, so you don't get to sell it. It's supposed to stay in these tribes. And in all the land of your possessions, you shall grant redemption of the land, the opportunity to, to buy it back. So fall in hard times, sell you my land. If it's not the year of Jubilee, you have an opportunity to buy it back, kind of like a pawn shop. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, and if the redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. We see this with the story of Ruth and Boaz. And Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer that buys us back from sin. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he's not able to have it restored to himself, then what was told shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. So if he's not able to buy it back in those 49 years, then he gets it back in the 50th year. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if he is not redeemed within the space of a full year, the house of the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generation. It shall not be released in Jubilee. So the only exception to this is if you have an apartment in a walled city. <laughs> If that's the case, then you only have a year to be able to purchase it back. However, the house of villages, which have no wall around them, shall be counted as fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possessions, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if any man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold and the city of his possession shall be released in Jubilee. For the house in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it's a perpetual possession. The Levites, their land was to be passed down to future priests, future Levites, so they could buy back the house, but they couldn't buy back the, the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him 
like a stranger or sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So if you lend money to a fellow Israelite, you weren't to charge interest. You weren't to take advantage of their poverty. We see some laws concerning slaves in 39 through 55. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you, and he will serve you until the year of Jubilee. So an Israelite's upon hard times, treat him as a hired servant, not as a slave, and then that 50th year, he gets to, to go free. So if you're in that situation, you're hoping it's like the 48th year. <laughs> you're hoping you're close to the, the 50th year. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants who I brought up out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female servants. Moreover, you may buy the children of strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you shall make them an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as possessions. They shall be, they shall be your permanent slaves, but regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with, with vigor. So they weren't to allow other Israelites to, to be their slaves. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to the member of the stranger's family, after he's sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near to kin to him, his family may redeem him or if he is able he may redeem himself. Why is this a beautiful picture of Christ? Because we can't redeem ourselves. We can't buy ourselves out of sin. But Jesus comes in as the redeemer and pays the price for our sin. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if he remained but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years, he shall repay him the price of redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. And if he's not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Some would read this section of scripture and say, is God condoning slavery? I don't think that God is 
condoning slavery, he's refining and bringing accountability to a current system that's in place. If you read the scriptures to Genesis to Revelation, it's clear that God's created us, that we're bought with a price, and that we're not to be enslaving one another. Don't think it's God's heart for there to to be slavery. And it's amazing when you look at the numbers on slavery, slavery is alive and well. There's, There's just as many slavery slaves as now as there has been in times in history past. So how do we apply this section of scripture? Worship God in the responsibilities. People worked hard to bring in the pure oil. The priests worked hard to keep the lamp lit 24-7. Okay, the Sabbath's coming. It's Friday. We need to bake these loaves of bread. That happened every week. There's, there's work that's involved there. There's this responsibility of the name of the Lord to be feared and to be respected, even in a difficult situation. As we look at the responsibilities of life, it is an opportunity to worship the Lord. I don't know about you, but as we've walked through 2020 and now into 2021, it seems like the daily responsibilities have just gotten a little bit heavier. <laughs> just a little bit heavier. Things aren't trucking along about the same speed, and it's just more difficult. And it's an opportunity to say, okay, Lord, I got to do a lot of similar things tomorrow that as I did today, and I want to do it in worship unto you. Then, rejoicing, resting. Do you have some vacation days that you haven't used, that you're not planning on using? According to the research, Americans are the only country that don't use all their vacation days. We have a policy here at the church that you can only carry over one week of vacation. And the purpose of that is trying to provide some accountability to use your vacation. Because we'll tend to not take our vacation days. I was talking with Amber this week and saying, we need to put some dates on the calendar, otherwise this year's going to go by and I'm not going to take time off. Because my MO is going to be to continue working. And I know what you're thinking and I'm thinking, well, there's nowhere to go right now. So I might as well work. What am I going to do with my vacation? Could be a staycation. Could be stay at home and play. We do happen to live in a beautiful state. Have you realized that? Right? Is there parts of Colorado you haven't seen or some beautiful places that you haven't been to in a while? There's even this really nice park in Woodland Park. Have you checked it out? It's like this newer park as you're driving up Woodland Highway 24. It's on your right. Get a cup of coffee and sit in that park for the day. Sit in that park for for half of the day. But rest, play, and enjoy. Rest, play, and enjoy, and trust that God is able to provide. This is such a hard teaching to receive, isn't it? Some of you are looking at me like I just busted you in adultery. Like, you're like, is the pastor really telling me to rest, play, and enjoy? Absolutely, absolutely. And it may sometimes even feel like a little more work to rest, play, and enjoy. We're comfortable in our work. We 
got that routine down, but we get out of that routine and we begin to feel uncomfortable. But that's where God meets us in that space. I find when I rest that there is a restorative work that God does in my soul that doesn't happen any other way. When I say, okay, work can wait. This needs to be a day to, to rest. One of the things with sermon preparation, you never feel like you're done. You always feel like there's more to study, there's more to prepare, and it can be easy on a day that's supposed to be a day of rest. Well, I'll just get a couple more hours of, of study time in. It feels really disingenuine and wrong as a pastor to be able to say, you know, I can't do a hospital visit today. Or, you know, today I can't meet with you over your marriage. Because it, it's a day that I need to, to rest, be with the Lord, and be with, be with my family. Like, it doesn't feel like there's any room to do that as, as a pastor. But if I choose to do that, there's something that happens in my soul that I actually have something to give. And God is able to, to bless that sermon in a way that's far greater than if I would have overworked and tried to do things in my, my own effort. This is one of the downsides of our culture, is to overwork. It's what we do. It's what we're comfortable with. It's what we value. When we ask people, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You must be really busy. Oh, you're right. I'm so slammed. Like, you're the superhero. Oh, like, like you're busy, right? But if you ask somebody, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm kind of bored right now. Like, there's not a lot going on. Actually, I, I took this week, and I did a whole lot of nothing. Like, oh, dude, you're a loser. You did a whole lot of nothing? It's like, it's like, hey, idiot, what are you doing on your lawnmower going around in circles? Don't you know that's not the way that we're supposed to mow grass? Oh, I'm just playing out here on my riding lawnmower, right? But in that play, we're going to enjoy the Lord. And in that play, we're going to enjoy our family, and we're going to enjoy others. So, what kind of play are you going to find yourself in tonight? I don't know, but it should be fun. Maybe you'll stay up till 11 o'clock. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> All right, let's stand up and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of joy and a God of relationship. And you rested on the seventh day. You didn't need to rest, but you chose to rest because there's something good there. Lord, would you help us? Help us to not shy away from responsibility and those mundane things to be able to, to worship you, but then also to enter into times of joy and rejoicing. And we do that tonight at your table. May you restore unto us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.